0: The following sermon is brought to you by New Covenant Community Church, a Bible-based church located on Route 62 east of Johnstown, Ohio. To learn about New Covenant Community Church, visit www.new-covenant.org. Again, that is new-covenant.org. Now, enjoy the message. Amen and amen. If you love being in God's house, say amen. Amen. It's a good, good day. If you have a Bible, open it up or turn it on or whatever you need to do with your device to get the Bible there. And uh, you can turn to Matthew chapter 16, find your way there, bookmark it with your thumb or a gum wrapper or your neighbor's head, whatever you need to do to keep Matthew chapter 16 right there, and then turn also over to Luke chapter 2. We'll be in both of those places in just a very, very brief moment. In our increasingly secularized world, you say the word Christmas, and even though there's much confusion and a misunderstanding about the Gospel, about Christ, you say Christmas, and even in our secularized culture, most people, I would say, in America at least, maybe most people, would think of a baby in a manger. They would at least get that much. And there's this faulty understanding that circulates around that understanding of a baby in a manger that a lot of people will think and and it's a false belief that that Jesus first began to exist on the first Christmas that he when he was born he was born into the world he was a creation of God that that simply came into being on the first Christmas and we know that that is not true Genesis 1 tells us that God said let us make man in our image Who is the us? It's none other than God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. John 1 and Colossians 1 both teach us that there was nothing made, whether on heaven or on earth, that was made unless it was made through Christ. All things were made for Christ and through Christ. So we know that Jesus, what we know of Christmas, is that before the first Christmas took place, that Jesus was the King. Everyone say those words with me. Jesus was the King. And he dethroned himself in human form on the first Christmas. He had he was in heaven, ruler of heaven, and he dethroned himself to come in the form of a baby in a manger on Christmas. And you say, Pastor Ben, what's the primary purpose? We know that Jesus did many things; he healed. He set free. He did many, many things. But we could capture this, and I believe I can show you this verse on the screen. 1 Timothy 1.15. Do we have that up on there, Travis? Maybe we don't. There it is. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I like reading along with you probably as much as you like reading along with me, but we're going to try it this morning. Let's read all of this together. Say it together, one, two, three. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why He came. This was the overarching reason and purpose of why a king in heaven would dethrone himself to come and to save sinners sinners. And the question that I would like for us to answer this morning is, how did Jesus view that goal, that purpose of why he came? What, why did, what, how did he feel about himself doing this? What was his attitude towards the job that was to be done? And if you're in Luke chapter 2, find verse 45 and we'll uncover how he viewed this job to be done this going into a world to save sinners verse 45 we catch up in this portion of text in a place where jesus is now 12 years old and with Mary and Joseph, his mother and father, they're traveling in a caravan of people, likely with family and friends and neighbors. They would travel in a caravan because it was safest to do so in that manner in, these, in this time. Kind of like it is today. It would be dangerous to walk by yourself along a big roadway. And so they would travel in a large group together. And they would travel to Jerusalem in this portion of text. They're going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. And the Passover feast, if you remember from the book of Exodus, you remember Moses leading the children of Israel out of Egypt and the last plague because of Pharaoh being just a total tyrant over these people and and God pronounced a plague over the people that the angel would come and kill the firstborn. And God instructed Aaron and Moses to tell the children of Israel to put blood on their doorpost and the angel would pass over their home and the firstborn would be saved. And the Israelites, the Jewish people, they would celebrate this. They would get together once a year for this big, huge feast, and they would celebrate God's faithfulness and his mercy in the Passover feast. So they go to Jerusalem. They're there for a set period of time. And then this large caravan of people is now leaving Jerusalem to go back to their home. And Mary and Joseph, Jesus is 12 years old now. They, they're a part of this caravan. The big caravan is leaving the city. And, and they don't know exactly where Jesus is, but they know that he's probably in this caravan, probably with his cousins and friends and siblings, those types of things. And they go a little ways. They, they try to go up through the through the crowd of people, this large caravan that's now traveling to try and find him to make sure at least that he's in this group of people heading out of town and come to find out he wasn't there. So look now to verse 45. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, seeking him, seeking Jesus. Now so it was that after three days, if you have children, raise your hand if you'd be panicked after three days of not knowing where your kid is. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, son, why have you done, th- why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must, everyone shout the words, I must, I must be about my father's business. Now flip back over to Matthew chapter 16 and find your way to verse 21. This now fast forwards all the way through the earthly ministry of Jesus, most of it anyway, and it's getting right up to before his crucifixion. And listen to what Jesus says. Matthew 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show to His disciples that He must, everyone say He must, that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised the third day. We know from these texts that Jesus' attitude towards the job that He was to do with that first Christmas, what He came to do to save sinners, His attitude towards that mission was I must. I must be in the temple about my Father's business. I must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes. I must. The title of today's sermon is The Power of I Must. And I must changed how Jesus... Went about everything that he did. This this driving force, this passionate zeal to complete what it was that he came to do, it changed everything that he did. And I must gave Jesus purpose. It gave him the job to do, which which was to come and to pay our sin debt. And I must changed what Jesus did. Uh, Never once do you ever hear of Jesus being drunk. Never once do you hear of Jesus getting high. Never once do you hear of Jesus being sexually impure or wasting time or having rude behavior or cheating others or lying. Never once did you hear of Jesus doing any of those things because he had an I must about his life, an I must about his mission to save you and me. And I must determine where Jesus went, physically where He was to go. I must stay here in the temple, 12-year-old Jesus says. I must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and scribes and Pharisees. I must do it. The church of today, and when I say the church, I'm not specifically speaking of this church, but just large C church over the whole church of Christ as His children. There is a plague of a lack of an I must. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, how many Christians, how many people do you know that, that would call themselves Christians have this, this thing inside of them that says, I, unless I take this message that, that I know to be true, God, God's truth has penetrated in my heart and I'll, I'm redeemed from my sin. How many Christians do you know that say to themselves, People go to hell unless they know this saving message of Jesus. I must witness. I must make disciples. I must, I must pray for people. And I must have this mission about my life of, of sharing this news that I know, I know the only way to be saved. And I must share that with people. How many, how many young people do you know that say to themselves and say to others, that Jesus gave His life for me. Jesus gave His body for me as a sacrifice. Because Jesus did that, I must keep my body pure. I must keep what's before my eyes pure. I must be devoted to being a young person that lives for the Lord and having purity in my life. I must do this. How many older folks do you know? And I'm not beating anyone up here, I'm just saying, but how many older folks do you know that say, you know, I've been saved for... So many years, and the Lord has been so gracious to me, and I've got all these years of, of wisdom and experience. I must find younger people to pour my wisdom into. I may not have many more years left, but the ones that I do have left, I'm going to use those years to pour into this next generation and to show them the love and mercy of God that God has shown me over all of these years. How many fathers do you know that would call themselves Christians that say discipleship of my family is my responsibility. God has given that to me as the leader of my home. I must pray. I must know the condition of the hearts of my children. I must read the Bible to them. God's Word must be a central focal point of my home. I must oversee these things. How many mothers, how many ladies do you know? Whether they have children or not. Do you know that say, Jesus was submissive to the Father. Jesus submitted His will to the Father. And God's Word, Jesus' words in Scripture say that, that wives are to submit and to be a helper to their husbands. I, I must humble myself in, and submit to Him in a godly way. I, I must do this. Are there any toes I haven't stepped on yet? You know, just let me just make sure. and I'll, just, I'll take my own shoes off and step on my own toes here. How many pastors do you know that say to themselves and say to their congregations the the message of the gospel the only way truthful way of hope and forgiveness and redemption has been entrusted to me to preach to a church and to a community and to love the people that has been given to me therefore i must pray i must fast i must worship god and get on my knees and on my face before god and i must preach this gospel Church, there is a huge difference. There is a massive difference between those who have and I must and those who don't. There is a difference between those who have and I must and those who don't. I can remember, as a young teenager, my, my family was in the rodeo world, and my brothers and i were we did some bull riding and I did this horse barrel racing and if you 've ever been to a rodeo you 've seen some of these things even on the, even on tv you 've seen the PBR the professional bull riders and whatnot and uh, and my brother did most of the bull riding, but as a young teenager, um, if you don 't know if you 've ever watched on TV the bull riding, you, you know that the cowboy has this bull rope and it goes around the midsection, the, the girth of the bull, and it's what they use to tie their hand in. And a bull rider needs somebody to pull his rope. He needs somebody to be able to climb up on the edge of the panel and pull it so it can get his hand tight, and then he handed it over to him and he wraps it around the back of his hand, and then he can slide up on the rope and give the nod before they open the gate, and then the bull goes out and tries to buck the cowboy off. And, uh, and my brother did most of the bull riding in my family, but I was, I was young, I was spry, and I had good balance, so I was really good at pulling the ropes. And, and I remember even as a young teenager, I remember noticing that there's, there's really two types of bull riders. And, and you could see it start in the back, in the out gate behind where the chutes were when you'd see the cowboys getting ready to, to ride this bull. And, and, and one type would have this attitude of, I'm going to get him. I'm going to get him. Eight seconds. That bull doesn't know what he has coming to him. I'm going to be ahead of every jump. I'm going to be ahead of every spin. He's not going to buck me off. I'm going to get on that bull. I'm going to slide up on that rope. I'm going to give the nod and he's going to try to get me off, but I'm going to I'm gonna hear that buzzer ring and then I'm going to let go. I'm going to win my, some money tonight. I'm going to I'm gonna ride that bull. And you would see that attitude play all the way out. Other guys at the, at the rodeo would have me uh, pull the rope for him and I would get up there and, and they'd be sliding down, getting in the chute on this bull and they'd have this attitude of, I've got this, I've got this. And they'd get their hand in there and as soon as he I pulled the rope for him, they'd wrap their hand in. I mean, it's kind of a crazy thing to do to think that you're going to tie your hand to the back of a 2,000-pound full of testosterone beast that would like nothing more than to kill you. But, but they would have this great attitude of, I must do this, and they'd slide up on the rope and give the nod, and the guy holding the rope that's connected to the gate would pull the rope, and the gate would swing open. And if they didn't make the full eight seconds, boy, they would make a, I mean, it would be a great show. They, they, were, they were holding on as best as they could, and, and sometimes the bull would win, and sometimes the cowboy would win, but, but boy, they had a great attitude. They had a, an eye must down inside of them that just gripped them, and, and, and boy, they could really perform well. And the other type of cowboy was the type that, um, and it was usually younger riders, people that hadn't been bull riding for a while, and you could just see it for the moments prior to them having to climb up on the chute and get down on this bull and they're just, their joints just didn't seem to work right. They're just slow and they're stiff and they've just kind of got this kind of white ghost pasty kind of look on their face and, and, and they don't, they're don't they not real sure about what they're doing and, and you could see it. I'd be up there on the climbing up on the gate and I'm ha- holding the rope getting ready to pull so their hand can get in and, and you could just see this kind of look. They don't have any aggression, any passion, any zeal in what they're doing and, and, and you, I'd pull the rope, they'd get their hand tied in and they'd slide up and rather than sliding up on that rope and giving the knob, they'd, they'd just kind of sit there and, and, and shake shaking, shaking, shaking hand, grab, and and and, and the cowboy on the outside waiting to pull the gate open would be waiting for them to give the nod. That's how the guy knows to pull the gate open as soon as the cowboy gives the nod. And, And a lot of times these guys that were just kind of scared, they didn't have any kind of I must get this done attitude about them, they would get on there and then they would just freeze. And they wouldn't give the nod. Sometimes for 10 seconds, sometimes for 20, sometimes for 30 which in the rodeo world is a long time to wait to get that gate open and to let the bull go out and, and, and buck this cowboy off. And I remember one time, no joke, I'm, I'm standing on the edge, I'm waiting to see this guy just pulled his rope and he's so scared. And the guy waiting there, he's standing there waiting, he's like, come on, just poop or get off the pot. Come on. He's, he was just like, come on, just give the knots. So I can pull this gate and we can keep the rodeo going. And church, there's a huge difference between those that have an I must and those who don't. So, my goal this morning for us is to stir up inside of me and inside of you a godly ordained I must about our faith, about the things that God would have us do. Noah had an I must when God told him to build that huge boat. And all the people around him for however many, it was like 120 years somewhere in there that took him a long time to build this huge boat. And the people were ridiculing him and making fun of him, but there was something inside of him that said, I must do this. I must build this boat. I must do what God has told me to do. Elijah had an I must when he realized that he was the only prophet of the true living God left, and there were 450 prophets of the false, fake God Baal is what they called it in Scripture. And there was something inside of him that said, I must show the people who the true God is. I must create this contest on Mount Carmel to show that these prophets of Baal, they're phonies. They're believing and worshiping a false God. I must do this to show the people who the true God is. Daniel had an I must. When he was praying three times a day with his window open in his house and he's praying out loud, the Bible says that he would give thanks to the Lord three times a day. He knew that the officials were out to get him. He knew that it was illegal to pray in the way that he was doing. But there was something inside of him that said, I must pray. I, even if they throw me into the dungeon with the lions, I must pray and give thanks to my God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had and I must, about them. When they would blow the horn and everybody else would have to bow down to this huge statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had built, and, and there was something inside of these three Hebrew boys that said, I'm, we must worship God. We're not going to bow down to this fake, false idol. We must worship God. Job, if you remember the story of Job, he had an I must moment when his family, his children had been killed, his crops, his livestock, his wealth, everything had been taken from him, and, and if you remember the story, this was, this was a heavenly ordained test. The devil says to God that if, if you let me get at Job and, and grip his life and take these things away from you, he'll surely curse you to your face. And God said, no, there's no one There's no one in the world like Job. He is a righteous man. Man and, and, and God allowed the devil to strip Job of all of these things. And he's, he's sitting there, I almost imagine he's laying on the ground in a fetal position, just overwhelmed with the amount of pain that he's experiencing both mentally and physically. And, and even, the Bible even says that his wife is just saying, just curse God and die. That was what his wife was telling him to do. But Job, deep down in his spirit, there was something that said, I must worship God. And the Bible tells us that he says, The Lord, Job says with his own lips, he says, In this terrible state, he says, The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job had an I must down in his spirit. David had an I must. The young shepherd boy, when he's standing there along the line of his people and he sees this huge line of people and there's this huge, overfed one named Goliath that's walking back and forth and taunting the people of God and cursing God. And, and David is saying to himself, is no one going to challenge this guy? Is no one going to step forward and challenge this guy who's cursing our God and saying all these wicked things against our God? I, I must take him down. I must. Where's my slingshot and some rocks? I must confront him and he's cursing my God. I can't stand this. I must take him down. How many of you have heard the stories of a lady whose child has just been run over by a car and the car is on top of their child, crushing it, killing it, and then some little 115-pound soaking wet lady will just come up and flip the car over. Have you ever heard those stories? Raise your hand if you've ever heard any of those. Yeah, a lot. most of us probably have heard stories like that. What is it, church, that would cause a 115-pound light-framed lady that normally would not be able to flip a car over That when the car runs over her child and is killing and crushing her child, 115 pounds can turn into some kind of beast and just, "Ah, I must flip this car. Because an I must gets a hold of her and something incredible happens when there's an I must in our lives. It drives us into something that turns us into this determination, this, this, this visceral kind of, I will, I must, I will do it, I will not do anything else. I will put myself to the work of what it is that God has called me to do. There's too much at stake not to have, and I must. So church, people, my dear friends at New Covenant Community Church, what is your I must? What is your godly ordained? I must. What is the I must that interacts with your faith in a very, very real way? Because here's what I believe I believe that most of us, I would say maybe even all of us, have an I must about something in life. We know what an I must is in other smaller areas of life. I'm pretty sure that Tim has an I must moment when he sees an unpainted wall. I must paint the wall. I'm pretty sure that Rick has an I must moment when he sees a broken down diesel engine. I must fix the diesel engine. I'm pretty sure that the ladies in the Clark family have an I must moment when they see a sick puppy or kitten. I must heal the kitten. I'm pretty sure that Brad has an I must moment when he sees an unbalanced spreadsheet. I must balance it. I think Beth has an I must moment when when she sees an undecorated Christmas tree. I must decorate. The Christmas tree <laughs> or one that Joseph and I have, have decorated she, she has to decorate that one too and she probably should it doesn't look near as good as when we do it she doesn't it looks great church I know I'm being funny here but here's what we can know for sure and here's the question I'd like for us to answer what would happen what would have happened if Noah didn't have an I must his family would have perished What would have happened if Moses didn't have an I must about his life and the mission that God had given him to do? That whole nation would have perished. What would have happened if Joseph in in, in charge of the second command of the entire known world after he had been put in the prison and raised up to power and he's sitting at the right hand of Pharaoh and he's in charge of all these food stocks and this huge great drought, this huge famine that's all over the world? What would have happened if he didn't have an I must about his life? many nations would have perished. What would have happened, church, if Jesus did not have the I must about what it was that He came on earth to do on that first Christmas? To seek and to save the lost. To save sinners like you and me. Here's what we know at the very, very least, is that all history and eternity for us would look very different. Our history books would look different if those just few men that I mentioned, even if you were to exclude the Son of God and just these earthly vessels, these earthly men like you and me, what if they did not have the I must regarding their faith and regarding their relationship with God and the things that He had called them to do? All history would look different. An eternity for you and I would look very different if Jesus hadn't had the I must about His faith, about His relationship with the Lord, about what it was that God had called Him to do. Jesus trusted the Father. He, he, he completed what it was that He had called, been called and what, God had, what He had agreed to do, what Jesus had dethroned Himself for. He did. And church, here's why this is important. Um... And I didn't even, wasn't even sure to whether or not to include this, but I think I will. You know, as soon as we hit the new year, us together as a church family, as soon as we hit the new year, we're going to start starting January 1 with an emphasis of prayer. And I've got materials and all these things. There will be more that I'll explain about this at a later time. But our church is going to have 40 days for those that are willing to truly devote themselves to 40 days of prayer. We're going to collectively, for those that are willing, as a church family, Go through 40 days of prayer and praying for many things, many things. I know many of the things that are going on in your personal lives right now, and certainly I will be going alongside with you and praying about those things. But an overarching mission of this time of prayer that we will devote ourselves to is to ask God for us collectively as a church to humble ourselves before Almighty God to see what it would be that the Lord would have for us to do as a church. New Covenant Community Church, like, what is God's vision and mission? And there are certain things that we know in Scripture, to go and make disciples, Matthew chapter 28. Like, there are certain things that we know, but, but is there something specific that the Lord would impress upon our hearts to, to go into the community, the mission, the vision? What is it that God would have us do together as A church, because here's what I know and here's what I believe. I believe that I could spend a couple afternoons and with my creative brain, sometimes if I've had enough coffee, I could come up with a fun little cutesy slogan that I could say is the mission and vision of our church. And it would be something that would be cutesy and fun to put on a t-shirt. But to be honest with you, I can't even get excited about that many pastors, many churches will just throw a vision or a slogan out that's to be like the central theme of what the church is about and what the church is to do in the community. I can't even get excited about me doing that. And I I don't think you should either. But church, if you and I together humble ourselves and we pray and we seek God's vision for us, we seek His guidance and His direction, all of a sudden, it becomes something that has an I must about it. If there's something that we truly feel, we truly feel God is impressed upon our hearts, that would be the vision of New Covenant Community Church in our world and in our corner of this space, in, in Johnstown, Utica, and the surrounding areas, if we truly feel like we've heard from the Lord in this, then that's an I must. That's something that I'm willing to run through a brick wall for. What if we church as individuals or we as a church, collectively as a church family, what if, we, what if we don't have an I must? What if we don't? What if we just don't have an I must about our life and our personal life with our faith and with the Lord and as a church family? What if we just don't? I think we could say this, that at the very least, the history of our community would look very different. It will look very different. Should the Lord choose, choose not to come back, say, in the next 200 years, all of us will be very much long gone by then. If, if we don't have, an I must, Johnstown will look very different. And not for the better. If we don't have, an I must, about the mission that God would give us in our space of this world. And certainly the eternity of many people in it, in our community, will look very different. The thing that weighs in the balance of whether or not we have, and I must, is people's eternity. Of whether or not they spend eternity in heaven or in hell. This is a weighty, weighty matter, church. So you say, Pastor Ben, what do we do? How do people get like this? Here's what I'd like you to do. If you're in your Bibles, turn over to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, find verse 14 when you're there. Church, for us to not go through life without, and I must, in this dull, blind, deaf kind of way, we need to understand what happens to us. We need to understand, and this is what I love about Scripture, it doesn't just tell us about God, but it tells us, About us. Matthew chapter 13, verse 14, and it says, And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is filled, which says, Hearing, you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing, you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. So here's what I'd like to do. And for those of you that would be joining us on our podcast later, you really ought to jump over on the YouTube so you can see me making a fool of myself here. Um, Here's what I'm going to describe that of, uh, of what, have how scripture paints the picture of people that are without an I must they don't have a vision they don't have a a plan they just they're just kind of floating and their ears just start to become more deaf and their eyes start to become more dim and, and, and that's the pattern that we see so it's it's kind of like this you didn't think you're all going to see this this morning If you have anything bad to say about your pastor, now is a great time because I will not get any of it. And you say, well, Pastor Ben, the, the verse that we just read, if, if you read that whole story, it's, it's speaking of unbelievers. The disciples come to Jesus and ask why He preaches and speaks in in parables and Jesus says that the prophecy of Isaiah may be fulfilled that that seeing they will not see and hearing they will not hear they will not perceive in their hearts and you say well that's talking about unbelievers but we at New Covenant Community Church are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and so this doesn't apply to us and I would agree with you if it wasn't for in Hebrews 5 verse 11 the writer of Hebrews says uh, that there are many things That he would like to say to the the audience, the readers of Hebrews, there's many things that he would like to say about Jesus, about Christ, but he can't because their hearts have become dull, their ears have become deaf, their eyes have become blind, they've become dull. And when I studied and prayed about this, I thought, man, it's really describing like a possum. They're just, they're almost blind. They, they can't really hear very well. They're just a dull, slow-moving creature. There's nothing striking about them. And, 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 and this is how many people go through life. They, they say, okay, we're going we're to go to church and, and get a little bit of God's Word, hear a little bit of it, see a little bit of it. But then after that, we go to lunch and we don't act any different. We don't Offered to pray for the person that's the waiter or the waitress at the lunch table. It's we just fit in with the rest of the crowd, and and, and maybe we even go to church on a Wednesday night, and we we get a little bit more, and and, and we see a little bit more of it. But but we we see we, we learn a little bit about about husbands serving their wives as Christ so loved the church, meaning that we have to be willing to lay down our lives for the sake of our wives. And but when it really the rubber meets the road, and we just we kind of just put these on, put this in, we can just kind of in our doll slow moving lack of an I must about our faith. This is this is kind of how we go through life. But there's something interesting in that portion of Matthew that we just read. Is that the way to and here's what I'll say about this state is that it is impossible, it is impossible to have an I must when you're in this state. It's impossible. It's impossible to have one in your personal life with your family. It's impossible to have and I must in a church family if, if we function and go through life like this. But, but here's, here's how we're fixed of this. And I love what Scripture says. It says that if we would understand in our hearts when the truth of God starts to penetrate our heart in a way, that we realize that God's Word says that unless people are forgiven of Christ, He is the only way to heaven. And that penetrates us and that grips us and we say, oh man, I, I, must, I, must, take, I must take the blinders off my ears and I must, I must be able to hear what God's Word is saying and all of a sudden we can hear clearly. We start learning things like God has given us men the responsibility to, to disciple our families and to nourish them with the Word and, and, and we, that we let that penetrate our hearts and we let it sink into our hearts and the Bible says that, that we would be healed of those things by God. And that, it's, and that it's God that would heal the blind eyes. And heal the deaf ears. That when we understand with our hearts. And it just struck me as I read this that, boy, that's like the same thing for the unbeliever. The person who's unbelieving in Christ. The person who's not repentant of their sin. It's like you could, you could intellectually in a dry way think about something in your head or even say a prayer, but it was in your head and, and nothing ever li- really penetrated your heart. It's an understanding in the heart that you're a sinner. It's an understanding in your heart that God raised Christ from the dead. That's when God heals the sinner of their sin-sick disease. And when we, church, as believers, as redeemed, forgiven, our names written in the Lamb's book of life, redeemed, Sinners, that that when we have allowed our ears to become just a little less keen and our eyes to become just a little less sharp, that it's opening our heart up to the truth of God and letting His Word penetrate us in a way that that causes us to tear off the things that would hinder our vision and our hearing. We must, church, have, and I must. So do you have, and I must, about your faith? If you would all stand with me and Brian, if you would come now, I took the liberty of going ahead and picking three I must that we ought to have, and you can disagree with me if you want. But I believe that the, on the authority of God's word, that, that these are things that that we must have, and I must about in our life. Show us that first one, unless it's already gone. The, I must be faithful to the Lord. There it is. I must be faithful to the Lord. Everybody say that with me. I must be faithful to the Lord. Now I want you to say it with some passion, with some volume in your vo- voice box. I must be faithful to the Lord. In my marriage, I must be faithful to the Lord. In my relationship with my kids, I must be faithful to the Lord. In my workplace, I must be faithful to the Lord. In my finances, I must be faithful to the Lord. I must be faithful to the Lord. So it's that next one. I must be in God's Word. Say it with me. I must be in God's Word. If you call yourself a Christian, and you are not regularly, daily, and I'm not saying it in a legalistic way, but you're not having a steady diet, of God's Word. You're like a fish out of water. And, and it's just a matter of moments until you die. You you cannot, you must be in God's Word, church. We must. We must. And you can disagree with me on that if you will, but you just be wrong. <laughs> Show us the next one. <laughs> I must make disciples. Say it with me. I must make disciples. I must. I must people 's eternity is in the balance, and, and we would ever act like that 's not our job. It is the great commission that Jesus gave us. We must make disciples, we must share our faith, we must. Pray for people with tears in our eyes and invite them to church and pray for them and, and, and let, let your little spirit get an I must about somebody in your life, be it a child, be it a relative, be it a friend, be it a stranger. Let your spirit be gripped with the truth of God that without Christ, they will be lost in eternity. I do not want to get to the end of my days. Even here on earth. I do not want to get to the end of my days. And be laying on my deathbed and think to myself, there were people that I know God has called me to reach. But I was just like this blind, deaf, just kind of fumble. No, I had and I must. And whether or not they came to the Lord, that's up to the Lord. But I will do my part, I will be faithful. I must make disciples. Church, Jesus was so passionate about saving us. There was nothing lax about what He did. There was nothing half done. I must be in the temple about my Father's business. I must go to Jerusalem to be beaten and killed for them. That encourages me, church. That that lights a fire underneath me to, to witness and to share my faith and to preach this Gospel and to seek the Lord like I never have before. So, Christmas is a great season. Don't get me wrong. It's a happy season. It's a fun season. But boy, is there a truth so beautiful. And boy, wouldn't it be a shame if our hearts were not penetrated with the truth of why Jesus came as a baby in that manger. And it was for us, church. It was for us. Let's pray. Father, God, thank you that you had an I must. You were so passionate about doing what needed to be done to save us, God. God, thank You that there are all these examples that we can see in Your Word of people that had an I must about them. God, let us not be lethargic and deaf and blind and have a dullness about us. God, let us repent of those things. Let us in our spirit, God, have an I must about what it is that You have called us to do as a church and as individuals in our lives. Let us have a godly ordained I must when it comes to what it is that You've called us to do. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let's pray and respond.